Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of all of our assemblies. I love watching the enthusiasm that uh, takes place here with our children. Uh, so thank you, parents, for helping us with that. And I hope that you're encouraged today just as I am. Uh, we are a group of um, imperfect people who have found hope in Christ Jesus, and that's changed everything. It's changed everything and it directs the way that we live. And so I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope and pray that all of us can leave today encouraged and more committed to live in a way that honors our Lord. I want to welcome those of you who are here. Many of you may be in town visiting. We're so glad that you're here. Some of you might be here and want to know more about our church. I uh, hope that you can Check us out uh, and come visit with us at our Welcome Center. And if you're watching online, we'd uh, hope that you can go find out more from our webpage. We're in a sermon series for the month of December that we're calling Joy to the World because Jesus is really joy to the world. And we're focusing on a passage, a special passage from the book of Philippians, chapter 2. And we're looking at verses 5 through 11. And I'd like to invite you to turn to that right now because we're going to be spending our time here in this text. And you can pull it up on your phone or open your Bible. If you are looking for a Bible to use, you can pick one up uh, there in the, probably in the back of the pew in front of you. And we will be on page 831, so you can just turn to that. Last week, we started the series, and Tyler Josephson did a wonderful job in helping us put this passage in its context. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, had heard that the church that he loved so much, this Philippian church, the church there in Philippi, they, he got news that there was some quarreling, some arguing going on, and he wanted to talk about that, and he wanted to call the church to unity. And he said he wanted them to be like-minded, to have the same love, to be one in spirit and of one mind. And then he, he knows that in order for this unity to take place, there has to be a spirit of humility. And so he continues this passage in verse 3 and 4 saying, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then we get to what I feel is the key verse here in this passage. In your relationships with one another, Paul writes, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then as Tyler mentioned last week, we expect the Apostle Paul to, to really give us some bullet points to go into this doctrinal uh, assertion of who Jesus is and, and the, the theology that goes along with that. But that's not what Paul does. Paul gives us a poem. And it's really a poem about God's descent to earth to take on flesh, to live as a human, it's really the story of Christmas. But Paul's purpose here is not so much theological. If you look at it in this context, it's more ethical or even pastoral. 
Paul wants us to see the Christmas story as more than just a nice story. He wants it to change the way that we think, to change the way that we treat each other, to change the way that we live. And so he says, I want you to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he goes in to what that looks like. Now, in my neighborhood, I don't know if it's like your neighborhood, but, but I feel a little pressure to put some lights up in my yard. All of my neighbors go, uh, I mean, sometimes they just go overboard with it. And so I hate to be the only house on the block or on the street that that's just dark, and so I've put up some, some lights and tried to be festive, but um, as I've gone jogging and running around my neighborhood, I'm so impressed with the energy that others have in, in putting up lights, but I've also noticed that there are many who go the extra step. They not only put up lights, but they put up a nativity scene, a nativity display, and in our neighborhood, there are several uh, displays and these are these are reminders of Christmas, reminders of the story. It's it's almost like this the cast of characters in the Christmas story. You've got the shepherds there, you've got the animals, uh, animals that that would possibly be in a stable, uh, and then some of the nativity scenes like this one here actually have wise men who've traveled from the east, but we all, we all know that they weren't there at the same time as the shepherds and everything else. But it's, it's kind of like a, a curtain display where we look at that picture, we look at the nativity scene, and it reminds us of the story of Jesus. And in the middle of the nativity, there's the young mother. A young mother who's obviously, she's got to be so exhausted and, and you think about what's going on in her mind. There's so much that's happening that's just swirling around that I'm confident that she really doesn't understand. Then you see the father, his face, in my mind, I imagine it to be fierce with resolve to protect and care for his young family that's vulnerable there in the night. And, and then there's the baby Baby with soft skin, curled fists perhaps. Many of the nativities have a baby that's got arms up, up raised up like a preacher or something. You know, I, I, don't, I don't really know uh, much about that. But the nativity helps us remember the story. But Paul is calling us, Paul is calling us, it's almost... It's almost like I feel like he's calling us to go behind scenes. That if this is a curtain call, to go behind and see what's really happening. What's really taking place in this story. Now, when I was in my 20s, I was introduced to one of an author that has become one of my favorite authors. His name is Gene Edwards. I don't know if any of you have read any of Gene Edwards' books, but they really had an impact on me in the formation of my faith and expanding my point of reference. And one of the books that he wrote is one that I like to read this time every year. It's called The Birth. And in this book, Gene Edwards actually takes the reader to look at the Christmas story, but to look at it from the perspective of heaven. 
What is the birth narrative? What is Christ coming to earth? What would the angels think about it? Well, he talks about Gabriel. He talks about the angel Michael. He adds the name of, a, of an angel called Recorder just for the purposes of the story. And I'd like just to read you some excerpts of the, the birth of Jesus in his mind from heaven's perspective. Stupefied angels, utterly without insight as to what had just happened, turned back to face Recorder and wonder what it was Gabriel and Michael had made possible by their recent visit to earth. Do you not understand, cried Recorder to a host of blank-faced angels. Have you not understood, Recorder cried again, among the children of Adam, a virgin has at this moment conceived. Millions of dumbfounded angels continued to gape at the ancient recorder. Do you not understand, he cried, redemption is near. Salvation for the favored planet is at hand. And beyond our wildest dreams, the mystery will soon be known. His purpose, the eternal purpose, his reason for creation will soon be revealed. We stand at the highest moment of all history. And so it came to pass that for the first of only two times in all the history of angeldom, chaos descended upon the heavenly host. And to the delight of innumerable beings of light, all order broke down. Bedlam reigned and frolicking angels shouted themselves hoarse. I love this. This is why I like to read it every year, to see Christmas from a different perspective. It, it takes the, the narrative of the nativity, it takes that nativity picture to, to a different realm, and it gives me greater understanding of what possibly might have taken place that night in Bethlehem. Because really the story, the Christmas story, began way before Mary and Joseph. And it starts in a location that's much different than Bethlehem. And so this poem is about an intentional lowering of God himself that leads to our rescue and redemption in the most amazing way. And so I'm wanting us to go back and to look at this poem, this text. And I would like for you to try to comprehend the incomprehensible. And I would like for you to wrestle with these words, these carefully chosen words that are part of this story as we see what it is that Jesus actually did. Well, the poem starts off, who, speaking of Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God. You see, it talks about Jesus is God, and he's existed as God from the very beginning, from before time began. In very essence, Jesus is God and will always be God. He continues on, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Think about this. Jesus had all the rights, all the privileges, all the the control, all the power of God. But he didn't cling on to them. He didn't grasp a hold of them. He didn't use them to benefit himself. Rather, the poem continues, he made himself nothing. He wasn't forced. It wasn't something that he was obligated to do. He poured himself out, the original language talks about. He emptied himself. He lowered himself. And then the next phrase, being made in human likeness. God took on the flesh of fallen humanity. Think about that. The flesh of fallen humanity with temptation, with suffering, with weakness. He took on flesh as fallen humanity and he entered the world not as an adult. He entered the world as a helpless infant. The one who had never had any need at all. The one from whom all things came forth is now a helpless infant desperately needing the care of those that are around him just to survive it through the night. When we think of Christ's sacrifice, if I were to ask you to picture the sacrifice of Christ and how you've heard that talked about most of your life, I would venture to say that almost all of us here would picture the sacrifice of Christ as Christ on the cross. I would also venture to say that very few of us would probably picture the sacrifice of Christ in the manger. And yet this is what Paul is wanting us to see. Paul is wanting us to see the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that took place as we see that baby in a manger. Think about the sacrifice that was required for that to take place. The poem continues, taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus entered this world not as a king, not as royalty, not as a ruler, not as someone wealthy, not as someone who is able to use his power to control the situation that he's in. He intentionally took the lowest position of anyone in humanity. Put your mind around this. The one who had the authority to merely speak and the entire universe All of the galaxies came forth into existence. This one lived as a human with no authority at all. Lived as a servant of others. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God above all other gods learned obedience. Learned obedience from his mother. Learned obedience from his father. Learned obedience from his teachers, his mentors. 
learned obedience even to the laws of the land that he was born into. Even death on a cross. You see, not just only death, but death on a cross. And this cross to the Romans represented shame. The one who was crucified was hung on a cross with no clothes. Totally shameful. To be used as a lesson as an illustration of what happens to anyone who goes against the power of empire. To the Jews, the cross was a curse because cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. And so the death, the descent of Jesus was not just death, but death on a cross. And the punishment of separation from God that was rightfully ours, Jesus took in our place. The words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which should have been our final cry. He said it for us. And he descended into the domain of Satan so that we could be spared. I read this poem, I, I read the words on the page and I'm trying to wrap my, wrap my mind around it and I have to admit, I can't. It, it's, it's as if it just keeps spinning in my brain like one of those rainbows on your computer screen when it's trying to process information too fast. Have you ever had that or am I the only one? That's what my brain is like when I read this poem. That God became flesh and descended to a place so low that he actually took my punishment on himself. And I think, how can it be? You see, this is especially for me to, to, to read this poem and then to read the words that I'm supposed to have the mindset of Christ Jesus. I'm supposed to imitate Jesus in the way that I live. And I say, how can that be? How can I do that? I'm, I've grown up entitled all of my life. I'm an American. My rights are secure. I can demand my rights. And they have to be respected. How can it be to follow Jesus and have the mindset of Christ and lay down my rights and privileges to the needs of others? And I push back. You want me to sacrifice? You want me to listen to them? They're wrong. You want me to do that? That's beneath me. This is what I wrestle with. You want me to put their needs above my own? You see, it's so easy for us to have the mindset of empire rather than the mindset of Christ. You see, to have the mindset of Christ, I've got to train myself to value humility, to value selfless service, to 
value kindness and meekness. I've got to learn to resist the urge to live entitled with what is rightly mine and let go of my power. Let go of my authority and my control. You see, Paul wants us to see the story of Christmas as more than just a, a nice story. You see, he wants us when we think about Christmas, when we see the nativity, to go behind it and to really see what's going on. He wants the story of Christmas to change us, to impact us as we grow and we develop the mind of Christ. So, how does the story of Christmas impact us? What would Paul like us to see from this story? Well, first of all, I think it, it impacts us in the way that we see tomorrow. Why is, why is Jesus joy to the world? Well, because, think about it, our future, whatever unexpected blessings or whatever misfortunes it might hold, it's all in the hands of a God who cared enough to become like me. Think about that. You see, each of us faces difficulties and struggles and challenges. And we all have moments where we don't understand what's going on in the present and we're required, we're, we're called to face an uncertain future. And I think Paul wants us to go back and to think of the story of Christmas. What it is that took place there can give us strength as we walk each day. Secondly, it impacts the way that we treat each other. You see, we're no longer in competition with each other. We're no longer trying to see who's higher or who's more important than the other. We look to the interest of others before our own. We lay down our own, our own wants and desires for what is the best for one another. We try to outdo one another in service and in love. Can you imagine a marriage that is really like this? That, that, the, that both the husband and the wife, they try to outdo each other in serving, outdo each other in love. That's wonderful. Can you imagine a family that lives this out, that lives with the mind of Christ? That the biggest argument that they have is who gets to clean the toilets? I mean, what a different family that would be, a family that actually is, is sneaking around doing things just because they need to be done. Can you imagine what a church would look like like this? To where instead of wanting what the way I want it, when I want it, that we actually want to find what is that which helps the other flourish in their relationship with God. You see, that's what Paul is calling us to, to have the mindset of Christ, constantly trying to outdo each other in selfless service and showing love. But it also impacts, Christmas impacts the way that we see ourselves. And I think this is so important. Because from the very beginning of time, Satan has put lies into our minds. 
that God is withholding things from us, making us think that we're not worthy, that we're not good enough, that we're not smart enough, that we're not righteous enough, that we're not holy enough, that surely God wouldn't love someone like you or me. And we wrestle with that in our minds all the time. So I've, so I've been wrestling with this passage. I've been thinking, what is it? What is it? What would be the reason that Jesus would be willing to give up the status, the position, the power, the control, the, the authority of God and become like one of us? What is it? What's the motivation that Jesus has for this? And I've been wrestling with it over and over and over. And the only thing I can come up with is that Jesus wanted a relationship with you and with me and with all of us. Jesus considers his equality with God, his privilege as God, as secondary to the importance to his connection with me and with you and all mankind. To be honest, we don't understand that. If we really understood that, when I said that statement, we would all be jumping up or we would be falling flat on our faces. We would be getting down on our knees. If we really understood that, it would change us and we couldn't help but get up and just shout for joy. But the reality is, is that Jesus didn't hold on to the power and the privilege that was rightfully his. Rather, he gave it all up for something that he considered more valuable. Jesus looked around at all that was his as God. And he said, in effect, all this is not as important as my relationship with people. And my brain cannot really accept that. That's why Paul wants us to wrestle with this poem. You see, for Jesus, his godness was sacrificed as a means to an end, to restoring you and me to the relationship that God had with humans before sin came into this world. This is what Christmas is about. When you see the nativity, this is what it's about. It's not just what you see there, but if you go behind it, you can see a story that should change our life forever. The prophet Isaiah in the Hebrew Scriptures foretells of a coming Messiah, and he says, you will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Let's not let it just go in one ear and out the other. Let's think about what that means. You will call his name Emmanuel. Not God distant to us, not God separated from us, but God with us. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what gives us hope. That's what the world needs to hear.
I'm going to pray. And after that prayer, we're going to sing a song. But I hope that all of us will respond to God's word today. If you would like to talk to someone about this Jesus, we'd love to talk with you, either in the Welcome Center or down here at the front. If you need someone to pray with because you've brought some burdens in that you would just like to take before the throne of God, we've got some of our prayer team in the Welcome Center that love to pray with you. But all of us, let's let God's word change our hearts so that we have the mindset of Christ. Dear God, this has been a hard lesson for me to speak. Words are inadequate to talk about what is represented in this poem. But Father, I pray that your spirit will take these words and that they will work in our hearts, that they will bring humility, that we will begin to love others as you love them, that we're willing to live with your example, with your mindset, with your priorities. Father, thank you for Jesus. We can't fully comprehend the sacrifice that it took for Jesus to be born and placed in that manger. But Father, I pray that you help us to live with that and wrestle with it each day. And we pray this with the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen.